Thank you, Deirdre. So as Deirdre mentioned, our series is on who is Jesus, and we're looking at um, reasons why we don't put our trust in Jesus or we don't believe in Jesus. And, and one of the earlier message in this second half was um, we don't trust or believe in Jesus because his actions are offensive. Tonight we're going to look at the offensiveness of Jesus' words. Now when I say the word offensive tonight, I'm talking about um, speech that communicates ideas that we may not necessarily agree with. I'm not talking about violent threats, okay, and I'm not going to be talking about anything uh, profane. So I'm talking, it's narrowly focused, nothing that the, uh, the law uh, prohibits. So um, it's our propensity, you know, we see here the crowds and some of the disciples that were following Jesus were offended at Jesus's comments. Um, it's our propensity to be offended when we don't agree with something or with we think that something doesn't make sense and it, and it strikes us or it, it feels like it's attacking us. Um, and, and right now, we're in, a, we're in a season where there's a lot of a pushback and opposition and protest against speech that we find offensive in our culture. And so I'm sure you've read in the news, uh, you know, universities, colleges, businesses, Public-facing entities are um, really wary of, of having speakers or having employees say something that, that is going to be offensive and then stir up all kinds of protests online and real-life protests and you know, speakers are being blocked, uh, books are being banned. And what's, what's happened is that there's, there's actually a labeling of some of this offensive speech. Again, it's not it's not violent threats, okay? That's against the law, actually, uh, to make violent threats against somebody. Uh, just ideas that people don't agree with are starting to be labeled as hate and as violence, and, and it's being used to then justify actual acts of, of physical violence and retribution. Historically, offensive speech things that we don't agree with, things that, that may challenge our fundamental beliefs. Um, that idea has been a very important idea in, in the history of our, of our country, uh, in, in higher learning, because there's, a, there's an assumption that when we're, when we're challenged in our fundamental beliefs, um, we're going to grow through it. We're going to grow through it, and that's, that's necessary for us to, to learn anything. We have to have some, some place of disequilibrium that challenges us and says, well, wait a minute, maybe I, I, I'm not thinking right, or maybe I'm not believing right about this. And so um, it's an important idea for us to be able to communicate ideas, beliefs in a public way. Um, for us, not only as individuals, but as a, as a society to grow. Thankfully, what's, what's happening is that there is a, a growing resistance to this attack against freedom of speech in our country. More universities and colleges and journalists and newspapers are saying, now listen, wait a minute, we've gone too far. We need to be able to communicate um, beliefs and ideas and, and circumstances and facts regardless of who could be offended by them. One of my uh, favorite quotes on this subject is from John Stuart Mill, and I'm not going to read the entire 
quote, uh, John Stuart Mill was writing 200 years ago, and he's arguing for the importance of freedom of speech. And he essentially says this. He said, if there's, if there's a person that has an, has an opinion, and that person's opinion is different from the rest of the entire world, he says, the world is not justified in silencing that one man's opinion. The world is not justified to silence that one man, just as that one man would not be justified in trying to silence the entire world. And he doesn't, he doesn't back up his statement because of the harm it could, could do to the individual. He said, you know, if it was just a matter of harming that one particular individual or a small group of people because of that opinion, that would maybe be okay. He said, but the greater harm, the greater evil is what silencing that opinion does to society as a whole. He says it's a particular evil that robs humanity both now and into the future, the current generation and future generations, if we, if we try to silence an opinion. And he says there's two reasons. First of all, if that opinion is right and the whole society is trying to silence that person, the society is deprived of the opportunity to exchange the error that they're holding on to for the truth that this one person holds. He says, but even if that person's opinion is wrong, it robs society of what he says is almost an equally valuable thing. The ability for those who are in the right to get a clearer perception of the truth because of its collision with error. So he says, if we try to silence opinions, it's going to hurt the individual and maybe a small group of people, but it's going, to, it's going to hurt us as a society. And thankfully, again, we're starting to see some signs in our culture that we, we continue to need, as individuals and as a society, offensive words, because there are lies and deceptions all around us. That's one of the strong arguments for, for journalism in the first place is that it's a, it provides a place to hold a check on those who are in power so that the, that the society knows what's going on. So there's, there are lies and deceptions all around us all the time. Oftentimes, these lies and deceptions are used to manipulate us for others' gain, usually for power or for money. So again, other people's motivations through deception have the ability to affect who we are, what we think, what we believe. And we've all, again, heard all the stories on you know, how social media is actually <laughs> oriented this way. And so we need offensive words, and, and Jesus was a very skillful master of being offensive in his speech when he needed to be. And so this passage that, that we read tells of the crowds and many disciples leaving Jesus because of his, of, of his offensive speech. So I want to take just a moment to kind of uh, show what that passage is in context, because it's, it's a long way into a single story. And so the day before this happened, when these people are leaving Jesus, he had um, been healing people, and this massive crowd started following him. More than There was 5,000 men, so it was women and children as well, thousands of people following him because he was healing. And so he sat on the top of this mountain or this hill and, and people were gathered around and listening to him teach and it got time to eat. 
and he fed the entire crowd, thousands of people. And so he healed people, and he was feeding people. And so they're like, let's make this guy the king. Let's make him king. So Jesus figured out what they were doing, and he ducked out of there that night. Him and his disciples, they went across the lake to Capernaum. The crowd wakes up the next day, and they said, you know, they, they realized Jesus is gone, so they, they went across the lake, and Jesus says, hey, listen, the only reason that you're following me is because I fed you. That's the reason why you're following me. And then he starts to get into this message where he says, you need to stop spending your entire life working only for your daily necessities. You, you need to stop living your life just for bread because you're going to be hungry again and you're going to die. What you need to start working for is eternal food, eternal food. And so they say, well, how do we work? How do we do those kinds of works to get this eternal food? And Jesus says, well, you, you, need, to, you need to believe in me. And so they say, well, show us a sign, which is strange because he's been healing them. He's been feeding them, but they're still asking for signs. So the conversation continues, and they get to the point where they don't believe. And what Jesus does is he gets more and more offensive. Well, they eventually leave, and then Jesus turns to the 12 and says, are you guys going to leave me too? And then Peter says, where else would we go? You have the words of eternal life, which re reflected Peter's perception about what he thought and believed he needed to work for and spend his time doing. So Jesus, he's, he's addressing our most basic instinct that we have, which is to survive. You know, these crowds were following him because he's healing their sickness, he's, he's providing food for their hunger, he's alleviating poverty, uh, he, you know, they want him to be the king. They want him to solve all of their problems. You know, and, and who could blame them? Who could blame them? But, but Jesus wants them to desire and think about better things, about more eternal things, about deeper things. He wants them to want more than just these basic things to survive. And this, Jesus makes a distinction between things of the flesh and things of the spirit. He says, you guys are only focused on things of the flesh, things your body needs to survive. I want you to start thinking about things of the spirit, things that give life both now and into the future and eternity. And he says that the things of the flesh are no help at all in providing the kind of life that only the spirit can provide. And so the flesh, our, our, our physical needs, our bodily needs, the things that we need for everyday life, they distract us. They distract us from the things that are eternal. You know, over the last decade or so, there's been a, a growing group of people that categorize themselves or describe themselves as nuns in terms of their religious orientation. Now, I'm not talking about Catholic nuns, N-U-N-S. So I started sharing this with some people, and they said, and they couldn't, they weren't following me. It's, it's the nuns, N-O-N-E-S, all right? The nuns. Typically, when we think of the nuns, we think of atheists who don't believe in God. They, they believe that God does not exist, okay? It's an atheist. And they're not agnostics. 
Well, some are atheists, some are agnostics, but we typically think that these nuns are usually atheists or agnostic. Agnostic means there isn't enough information for me to make a decision about whether God exists or not. So I don't know. I don't know. That's what it means to be agnostic. So that's, those two groups are actually a small percentage of this growing group, the, the fastest growing religious group in America are these nuns. And they're not saying they don't believe in God. They're not saying that they don't believe in a higher power. These are, they, they may be calling, you know, the universe is a higher power that has some sort of control over our fate. They may call themselves spiritual. There, there's some sense within them that there is a higher power, but they're not committing to any group or identity from a religious perspective for a variety of reasons. There's something out there, they just haven't identified it, and they haven't identified it, they haven't identified with the people that follow it. There's, so they're just, it's actually the demographic group is called nothing in particular, is the checkbox on the particular um, tally or, or, or uh, poll that, that they conduct on these things. Jesus is tapping into a sense that I would say all human beings have. Maybe there's a few that absolutely do not. And it's this sense that there is something beyond me. The book of Ecclesiastes, the author says, he says that God has put eternity into the hearts of every human being, but yet they cannot find out what that is from beginning to end. So there's this sense that there's, there's something out there bigger than me governing all of the universe, but I don't know what it is. And Jesus affirms that when he says, you know, you don't believe because my Father has not revealed it to you, which is kind of another offensive statement. We'll pick up on that in a moment. Only those taught by God can actually grasp what this eternity in our hearts is. The crowd was willing to follow Jesus as long as Jesus did something for them. And that's oftentimes how we approach God. Over, you know, over the decades and centuries, a lot of people have just, they've attended church, their lives have gone well because it's kind of the tradition, but some, some tragedy occurs and they withdraw. They withdraw from church, they withdraw from God because something happened that they did not want to have happen and they blame God for it. And that's the way a lot of us have a relationship. That's how a lot of us see our relationship with God. And it actually is an exchange of roles. God is calling us to serve him unconditionally, but it's very typical for us to want God to serve us un unconditionally. When things are going right, we'll follow you, God. When things blow up, I don't need you. You, you betrayed me. So Jesus knows this tendency, this tendency to follow him as long as things go our way and as long as he keeps feeding us, just like the crowd. This tendency that we have as human beings is at odds with the desire, the efforts that we have, or the sense that we feel to connect to the Spirit. So our, our flesh is drawn to what we need to survive. This thing that God has put into our hearts 
is drawing us to figure out what eternity is. And what Jesus is saying, listen, as human beings, we follow these baser instincts. That's our tendency. You may feel like you want to follow the Spirit, and, and you may say that you do, but these things are in opposition. Until you put these things into their proper place, you are going to go down the route of the flesh. And so Jesus knows this is our tendency as human beings. And so this tendency is formed through lies and deception. These things that we think are going to provide life don't ultimately provide life. But we think they do, that's why they fall. So just in the two examples that Jesus has got here, food and health. Food and health, that's what, that's what is taking place 2,000 years ago. And if we think about food and health, the, the deceptions are challenging because there's some truth to their life-giving things. There's some hints or there's some shadows of eternal life because God has created these things as a blessing to, to human beings. And so if we just look at food, you know, it's sustaining we enjoy having full stomachs. Um, it's attractive at times. It's satisfying. We can be creative with it. It's always something great in a community experience. But it can become our focus. You know, it, it's no. Re is there no reason why you know there are? If you just look at all the things in our culture around food, food shows. Food tourism, cookbooks, gourmet kitchens, all these things around food. You know, it, it, even in my own family, I've got a great example of how you can just kind of get pulled into this world. So this, this past Christmas break, we started watching the Great British Baking Show. I, I know we were a little late to, the, to it, but I, you know, I told that to the cheese guy at the grocery store. And he said, you just started watching that? So Alicia was home, something that she was watching. So we all start watching, you know, and then you're like, it would be really nice to eat some baked goods while we're watching these people bake, you know, and it's a lighthearted show. You kind of feel good after it's over and it just kind of draws you in. And so, you know, so every night we're watching the Great British Baking Show. We're eating pies and cakes and cookies and cupcakes and, and then... You know, I buy Paul Hollywood's book on baking bread. So now I'm baking bread and eating pastries while we're watching the Great British Baking Show. And then I notice that across the street from my physical therapist is Bella Coeur, uh, Gavin Kaysen's uh, uh, bakery and bakery school. So I get a little early to my physical therapy appointment so I can go across the street and get, they've got these almond croissants that are out of this world. And then they have a book. Hey, here's Gavin Kaysen's book, Cooking at Home. So I, you see how it goes. And I see knives on the wall. Oh, I could use a new. We are drawn in. The world is drawing us in to, our, to follow our basic instincts. And we spend time and money and energy following those things. We can see, and I think probably we would all have to agree that we can let these things become obsessions. 
thinking that life is found in them. And the thing is, there's some good things. The book of Ecclesiastes says, hey, listen, happiness is found in family, in food, enjoying your work, maintaining health, as long as it's in a context of fearing God and keeping his commandments. So these are good things. Health. I mean, we've got... Everybody's got a phys- you know, personal trainers and fitness, and we have obsessions around health. We have obsessions around physical fitness, dieting. We, we, there are efforts in the health disciplines, medical disciplines, biology disciplines, trying to figure out how to prevent humans from dying. I mean, if, if nothing else demonstrates humankind's desire to find eternal life on their own, I don't know what is. That's literally the quest for eternal life and to rid ourselves of death. So even with just these two things, we can see our own tendencies to buy into lies that satisfying what our flesh desires will bring us life now and for eternity. But they're just a glimpse. They're just a glimpse You know, Jesus feeds the thousands and there are leftovers. Jesus comes to that that, uh, wedding party and he he provides the party wine when it runs out. There's 130 gallons he provides in wine. So Jesus is wanting to tell people, listen, I want to provide what you need for an abundant and full life now and for eternity. But if you continue to look to these things, they're going to continue to disappoint, distract, deceive, and you'll end up hating them because they won't provide what you're looking for, and it's a never-ending cycle. And so to, to break our tendency to buy, the, to buy into these lies, Jesus uses offense. Jesus uses offense. They followed when, they met, when he met their needs. Would he believe his words about eternal life and continue to follow him? Would they continue to follow him if he stopped meeting their needs? So he starts this conversation that steadily becomes more and more offensive. This word for offensive, that's translated to our word offensive, is actually, uh, the, the, in the original language, it's the Greek term scandalon, which is where we obviously get our word scandalous. And so Jesus is not being, he's not just being offensive, he's being scandalous. And he says some scandalous things to wake them up from being deceived about what they're pursuing for life. That's his intent. And he wants them, he's, he's going to use scandal and offense to steer them away from the things of the flesh and to steer them towards him and the things of the spirit. See, they wanted, they said, Jesus, give us bread forever. And Jesus knows that if they simply settled for this, they would end up dying. And so at the end, he says, you must eat my flesh and you must drink my blood. That's what he tells them. And they're like, "Uh, that is over the line, Jesus. We're out of here. And I think most of us, if if a 30-something upstart self appointed prophet that said he was God, told us to eat his flesh and drink his blood, we'd probably think he was a lunatic. Well, what is scandalous for today? Well, Jesus brings up three things. We've already mentioned food. 
daily necessities, health, fitness, well-being. When he says, listen, you're not believing because God hasn't, he hasn't revealed it to you yet. And so he's basically telling them, you don't really have a choice in the matter. I mean, that's a scandalous thing for us. You're telling me that I can't believe what I want to believe? You're telling me that, that I can't live the way I want to live because God hasn't shown me it yet? That's scandalous. Well, Jesus says other offensive things. You know, over the last 200 years, we have moved from a sense of personal identity and meaning and purpose drawn from what are called higher orders, God, country, things bigger and beyond us. That's where we used to, as a society, find identity and meaning and purpose. Now, things have changed over a couple hundred years. Now we get our sense of identity and meaning and purpose from our feelings. And there's this longing and, and desire to be authentic. And so to violate our feelings is to be inauthentic and not true to ourselves. And so we feel like we've got to be true to ourselves. And, the, and since, since uh, gender and sexuality are so ingrained to some of our most basic elements of who we are as human beings, our ability to... to sexually express ourselves the way we feel, to be the gender according to the way we feel. Um, these are things that, that we deeply believe in as a society because we believe they're tied to who we are and what our meaning and purpose is. And Jesus said a lot of things that are offensive about sexual immorality and transgenderism. It's offensive. Jesus, you know, we, there are some, sometimes we believe internally, our feelings are telling us, I want to be safe and secure with money and possessions and happy. Those are what our feelings are telling us. And to be authentic and true to ourselves, I need to pursue that. And so Jesus has a lot of offensive things about gluttony, greed, a call to service and sacrifice and generosity. Jesus says a lot of offensive things. And we need to ask, him, ask ourselves, when, we're, when we come across some statements of Jesus, when we come across statements in the Bible, because the entire Bible, Jesus said, listen, everything in the law, prophets, and writings is about me. They testify to me. I fulfill the entire Old Testament. So if you run across something in the Bible that's offensive, ask yourself, why? Why does this offend me? What am I holding on to that is so important about this particular thing? Why am I offended? You know, the most scandalous thing about Jesus isn't what all, he's, all these statements. The most, the most scandalous thing about Jesus is the gospel itself. Paul, Paul actually says the gospel is a scandal. Why is it a scandal? Well, God comes to earth as a baby to a poor family. He lived as a refugee for several years while his family fled um, the uh, King Herod's edict to, to kill him. He grew up as a regular guy, not of the rich elite, not of the powerful, not of the military, but as a carpenter. He stayed single and was celibate. He started, a, he started a public ministry at 30 years old, choosing to be poor and homeless. He spent three years healing the sick, proclaiming himself to be God, and calling all to repent and follow him. 
At 33, he was killed by the Jews and Romans through crucifixion, which was an automatic scandal to the Jews because you are cursed if you're hung on a tree outside the city. He was buried and then raises from the dead after three days. He then ascends into heaven. And the Bible teaches that he's at the presence of God and that he's going to return to judge all humanity and rule forever. That is a strange gospel. Gospel being the announcement of a new king that's going to solve all of the world's problems. That's what the word gospel literally means. Well, I'm not sure that we would automatically think that a person of this gospel would be the kind of person that we necessarily would look for as human beings. This isn't the guy we would describe. Like, describe the person who would come and solve all of the problems in your life and in the problems of the world. It, it wouldn't be the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's not what we would do. But that's why God did it. That's why God did it. Because it's scandalous. It doesn't feed any of our baser instincts. Our lust for power, our lust for money. It doesn't feed any of those. It's opposite of all of the things humans in the flesh put their worth in and what they believe are the ultimate and best things. So if you don't believe, or if you're running into some statements in the, in the Bible that are scandalous to you, it means that you're holding on to something that is temporary and will eventually lead to death. Death in your experience on this earth and death for eternity. Maybe it's, maybe it's Jesus' teaching that's offensive. Maybe it's Jesus' people that are offensive to you. And you, and you need to dis distance yourself from Jesus' people. But, but Jesus is calling you first and foremost to draw near to him, to believe in him, to, to eat his flesh and to drink his blood, to abide in him. And in him, through the Holy Spirit, we find life. Life now and that it can be fulfilling and not disappointing. And life eternity, life eternal with, 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 God, with Jesus Christ in the presence of God. So we, we need to examine ourselves why we're offended. And if we stop and, and, and acknowledge, okay, I'm offended, but I'm going to stop and think. Why am I offended? What could I grow in? And maybe, maybe you'll discover eternal life in Jesus. Let me say a short prayer. God, we thank you for the offensive words that you have put into the Bible and, in, and, in, and through the revelation of Jesus Christ that causes us to stop and think about what we're giving our lives to. We ask, God, that you'd help us to work past our offense and to consider the claims of Jesus, who rose from the dead, never to die again, as the guarantee of eternal life. In Jesus' name, amen.